to begin the penultimate lesson in the study on the Spirit. So next week will be the final study, final lesson on the Spirit. Uh, Mr. Aubrey will uh, summarize all of the Bible's teaching on the Spirit and the Christian life in just a 60-minute time, and I'm sure he will do it effortlessly, and it will be the, the greatest lesson in this series you will have heard, uh, because the ABF, Sunday School Hour, um, we're not meeting during that time on Christmas morning, so we have uh, put that uh, for a single lesson on the 18th. So this lesson uh, this morning is on the gift of tongues. This in itself requires so many uh, lessons, so many discussions. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about you know, really the, a lot of the other gifts. Uh, this is a follow-up from last lesson, uh, last week's lesson on Pentecost. So we'll look at Acts 2 again briefly, but then look at other texts. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians and in Hebrews. Um, so, so these texts help us to understand the gift of tongues uh, in a redemptive historical way. And I understand that this is a rather sensitive topic for some uh, in our own denomination. Uh, we don't affirm the continuation of the gift of tongues uh, as, as an abiding gift. That's not to stop uh, some um, licentiates or future uh, ordinance to register their belief that they, in a continuation of tongue speaking. I remember uh, when I was in Arizona, one of the uh, one of those under care um, friend of mine, he went up he went up for uh, licensure in the Presbyterian. His uh, his view that differed from everyone else in, in the Presbytery was that there was still a place for tongue speaking, not in the uh, corporate worship, but uh, relegated to a private expression of deeper spirituality. Uh, and that was, the man got licensed, uh, but only after a couple uh, follow-ups with Please write down specifically what it is you are saying, what it is you're not saying, and if this has any role in corporate worship. And after he made the proper qualifications and assurances that no tongue speaking, if he were ever to be ordained, because this is for licensure, if he were ever to be ordained, there would be, there would be no tongue speaking. Uh, after all those assurances, the Presbytery did approve uh, of his licensure, um, and he, eventually he did get ordained and is serving in Arizona. But that is a, a, um, that's an aberration in our denomination. So I understand that uh, some of you um, may have family members who believe in the continuation of tongue speaking. And if I could summarize the, the Bible's view on this, it was, it was great while it lasted, okay, as far as gift of tongues is concerned. So we don't want to um, make all the qualifications say basically that really was nothing special. It was truly special while it lasted, but it did not last. And the reason, there's a reason for that, as, as we'll talk about uh, as this lesson goes on. But let us begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious God, we come before you, we thank you for this opportunity to continue to Consider the great gifts from the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to think clearly and biblically about, in particular, the gift of tongues, that we might um, reverence your holy name all the more as we think about how you have worked throughout church history uh, and redemptive history. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we look briefly again at Acts 2, and we have uh, the language of mouths here, or tongue, as I mentioned last week, the word tongue in Scripture can refer to the organ of the mouth, okay? The, the, the literal tongue that you can stick out of people, okay? Uh, in Mark chapter 7, remember Jesus healed the deaf man after spitting. He, he touched the deaf man's 
tongue, a mute man's tongue. In James 1, the, the word for tongue can refer to the act of speech. Okay, uh, James says, um, you know, if you don't bridle your tongue, uh, really you are denying true religion. He's talking about bridling, not the physical tongue, but the act of speech, which of course is used with the tongue, the organ. Or uh, you can refer to a particular language spoken by a particular people. And uh, we read uh, Revelation 5.9 or 7.9 last week. People of uh, all peoples and tongues and nations will one day uh, be ushered into the new heaven, new heavens and earth. So tongues in Acts 2 means languages. And other tongues, then, that we see here, are other languages. It's very clear, especially since Luke gives us those particular languages in which the gospel was being proclaimed. In verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, and Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, and on and on and on, Everyone is hearing in his own native language, in his own tongue, a message. This is important because what this means is these tongues are not personal prayer languages, but instead are geographical, historical, ethnically tied, real languages which, at the time, were unlearned by these apostles. They came to know them. They came to be able to use them. But what was so special is that they did not go through Duolingo. They did not sit uh, before you know, the, the Parthians and say, teach us your language. And then, after four years of college coursework, were able finally to preach the gospel in those languages. That's not what was going on. That's why this gift is so special. They immediately became conversant in this language that belonged to someone else. And we see a mighty message, a message of the wonderful works of God. The tongues in Acts 2 are being used precisely as divinely intended. All of our tongues are to be employed for the worship of God. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever is what we say is the chief end of man. And we see then through this that they are doing the very thing that they were created to do, which is to speak of the mighty works of God. That's what we saw last week in verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, which again we saw summarized in verse 22, the the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So you have the the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ being proclaimed in a tongue that was unlearned. That is what all tongues are designed to do, to speak of the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ. And that's what these apostles were doing. They were preaching sermons in unstudied tongues, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So, considering the missional purpose, how does this action foreshadow the Great Commission? It was the first um, event in which the Great Commission was actually fulfilled. Yes. So, before he, he leaves, he says, go... You know, baptize and disciple the nations, teach them all that I've commanded you, 
And here, in Acts 2, he has given them the spirit that they might do the thing he's calling them to do. And then you see, as Acts unfolds, the gospel, the, mighty, the proclamation of the mighty works of God going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. You see the Great Commission being progressively and he fulfilled. Told them and then he showed them. Yes. What a great teacher. A wonderful teacher indeed. <laughs> yes. Teaching and signs. So tongues were for the nations to know the gospel of God's mighty works. And in order to maximize all of these different groups that are present, for all of them to hear, and then when they return to their respective places to spread the word when they return to their land, God gave these men the gift of tongues. So you see, even before the disciples get to various places, the gospel has already preceded them. It's already going out. It, it, people are already hearing the great works of God in their own tongues because these representative groups are hearing in Jerusalem the word of God proclaimed in their own tongue. And they believe. And what do people believe? Or what do people do when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved when they return to their place? Paul went to the woman at the well in John 4 did. Tells, yes, tells the whole, everyone, this guy told me about me. Okay. Modern day translation is the ordinary equivalent of this extraordinary gift. So, uh, confession, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, uh, paragraph 8. It's lengthy, but I'll read it. It says, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But, because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, okay, granted, not everyone knows biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, and if we know it, we don't perhaps know it as well as we ought to know it. Okay? So because of that reality, uh, and people who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar, that is common, vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So translation is not just a, a good thing to do. It is, according to the confession, a necessary work. And so we're thankful for Wycliffe translators and, and many other Bible translators who bring the word of God, the whole counsel of the mighty works of God, into a language that people uh, can now read, study the scriptures, and see that these things are so. Modern translation is a blessing. It's a necessary blessing. And in theology, we do well to make the proper distinction between Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis. So those are uh, Latin words, which I don't think are too unfamiliar. Historia, history. <coughs> Salutis, of salvation. There's your genitive singular, Lucy. I know you were looking for it. You got it. Okay. Absolutely. Historia Salutis and the Ordo Salutis. So what is... The difference between the Historia Salutis and the Ordo Salutis. <clears throat> Don't tell me it's relevance, that's the next question. <laughs> Just a basic distinction between Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis. Did you see what Ordo is? <clears throat> no, I'm sorry. I just assumed it was a given. Ordo. They're just different. (laughs) He's got it. They're different. That's all we need to know. So, Historia, history, Ordo, order. Okay. Okay. So, what's the difference between Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis? Before the coming of Christ, 
No. <laughs> not exactly. History is not necessarily chronological. History is not necessarily chronological. There are lots of different ways to, to, recount, to recount history besides going in a strictly chronological way. That's true. And we will definitely see that in the book of Judges. In fact, the later chapters of Judges are actually about earlier period. <clears throat> so that's true. Well, even the Bible is in strictly chronological order. You go, you go into chronicles sure. and find out that you just read about this stuff. Yep. Kings of Samuel. You got it. Ron? I, again, I'll take a stab at this in my own frailty, but <laughs> to me, the order of Salutis, this is the exact order that we have to come to know Christ and be saved be fully consummated before God, uh, our righteousness, and imputed to us in Christ. There's a, there's a order. There's a set step of method to go to that. The histor- historical is just really God's, you know, plan from Adam and Eve, from, from the, before the foundations of the earth. His plan, his redemptive plan, mm-hmm. to bring those whom he has called <coughs> to his salvation. And the events that take place in between there to drive people to himself, um, yeah. historically speaking. Yeah. So the Ordo Salutis doesn't change in the history of salvation. It all starts with the predestinating work of God. So there is a, an order. You know, you don't get glorified before you are adopted. Right? Okay. <clears throat> so there is a strict order of salvation, uh, which you could say transcends the ages. Uh, but there is a historical development. God has operated in history in real time. And the Historia Salutis, <clears throat> well, let me just press the question, this follow up question. Then why might this distinction be relevant to our present day study of gift of tongues? I don't know, I coughed. Um, The gift of tongues in Scripture was part of the Historia Salutis, but is not necessarily part of the Ordo Salutis. Okay. So what will happen if we put the gift of tongues in the Ordo Salutis? If we say that is a part of the Ordo of Salvation. Now Christians will do this. Okay. So, it becomes a necessary part of salvation. It is a necessary part of salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Correcty, that is false. That is false. As we'll talk, uh, as we'll see from Paul in just a little bit, do all speak, speak in tongues? And his answer is no. Rhetorically, the answer is no. No, not everyone speaks in tongues. Mm-hmm. We cannot put the gift of tongues in the order of salutes. <coughs> also, uh, was the gift of tongues from you know, almost any point in, in history? Could you find the gift of tongues throughout redemptive history? <clears throat> well, you couldn't. Uh, it comes at a certain point. comes at Pentecost. It didn't come before. So, we are gently pushing back on, on those who are going to say, you've you got to speak in tongues. And if you don't, you are somehow uh, spiritually stunted. Okay. The fact of supernatural phenomena does not normalize it for the church. The gift of tongues, as a sign of Pentecost, is redemptive. And last week we saw this. Uh, this is um, Pentecost is, um, you could say, a, a curse reverse, a cursal reversal of Genesis ten and eleven. Remember, Tower of Babel. Okay, so God divided tongues. He divided the one language because the people used that one language that they might dethrone God. They might exalt themselves, make a name for themselves. God judges them, divides them, and throughout, church, throughout uh, Old Testament church history, there is, there's this prophecy that the nations will come. And people from tribe, tongues, and nations will come and, and know the Messiah. So, 
we have then at Pentecost that reversal of the curse in historical fulfillment. Okay. Now, we turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Uh, I think it was a couple years ago that the elders and I went through 1 Corinthians. Much can be said about these three chapters. We're not doing a deep dive in these chapters, but you can, I can refer you to the sermon audio, um, you know, all those um, all those audios on 1 Corinthians, and of course, chapters 12 to 14. But in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 to 14, we have the, the gifts that this Corinthian church has been especially blessed with are now being used as um, badges of exaltation, if you will, a superiority, you know. If this person has this gift, well, that person is much better than those who don't have this gift. So he speaks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and prophecy in tongues in particular in chapter 14, and right in the middle, he emphasizes what the Corinthian Christians must emphasize, namely, love. Okay. So Paul is speaking to an especially spiritually gifted church, and we often uh, don't... Recall this, we've overlooked this fact, probably because all the Corinthian problems are so many, and there's so much division in the church. But they are really spiritually gifted. I guess this this would be then a caution for the church. When they are especially gifted, there's that temptation for division. Okay, that's another sermon for another day. I suppose. But there is one spirit. However, there is a diversity of spiritual gifts. Verse 11 says, All these are empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. We saw in this text as one indication of the spirit's deity and personhood. Spirit gives gifts to whom he wills. But here he is um, pressed upon the the church as the source of unity. He is supposed, they are to be united in the spirit. The same spirit gives a variety of gifts, a diversity of gifts to the whole body that they might work together, be united together and serve uh, one another and serve uh, the world with the work of Uh, with the proclamation of salvation. Not everyone is an apostle. Would you agree with that? Uppercase A, apostle. Okay? Not everyone is a teacher in the biblical sense of being a teacher. Remember, James 3 says, let not many become teachers because they incur a stricter judgment. Yes, we are to be teaching one another uh, the word of God, but there are those who are called to be teachers, and Paul's saying, not everyone is a teacher, not everyone is a worker of miracles, not everyone is a healer, not everyone is a tongue speaker, not everyone is an interpreter, verses 29 and 30. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And his expected answer is, no, of course not, Paul. And they have the evidence right in front of them as they consider the various gifts, the respective gifts that each Corinthian has. They know right from the beginning that not everyone is an apostle, not everyone's a teacher, not everyone's a miracle worker, not everyone has a gift of healing. They are... You know, variously gifted, but spiritually and especially gifted. And it's a crucial point for those who insist on tongue speaking as being necessary for the spiritual life, or even a higher gift to be sought. And that's usually how it is being portrayed. Now that you got saved, there is this other gift that we want you to have. You must have if you want to rise to the next spiritual level. It is the gift of tongues. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. 
Paul does. And he tells us to seek the higher gifts, and tongues are not among them. Again, they're, they're great as long as they lasted. So this, uh, this command to earnestly desire the higher gifts moves us into chapter 13, because at the end of chapter 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. <clears throat> Eleanor, don't leave before I give you something. Okay. Sorry, that's in the recording forever. <clears throat> and I just singled you out, sorry. It's okay, it's a good thing. <clears throat> so love is the highest gift to emphasize, to pursue, to practice. That's what he says in chapter 13. That's the whole thrust of chapter 13. And he says in chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So when he says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, he is not saying that he actually does speak in angelic tongues. And so people, people will say, Well, look, He's saying that he does speak in angelic tongues. Those are the gift of tongues that were brought about in Pentecost. Paul speaks in these tongues. But we don't know that he's actually saying that. He's not actually affirming that. Same thing with verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He is not actually saying that he has uh, that he understands all mysteries and that he has all knowledge. He's not actually confessing that. It would be nice to have all those things, wouldn't it? <coughs> so, we overstep by saying that tongue speaking is angelic speech. We don't know how the angels speak to one another. Of course, we know that they speak to men in earthly languages so that the men can understand them, but we don't know how they communicate to one another. You know, they don't actually have literal you know, physical uh, tongues. But there is some communication, obviously, between God and the angels. Uh, Wait, how, excuse me. How do we know that they don't have <clears throat> physical tongues? Because they are spiritual beings. They are immaterial. Okay. Yeah. They don't have a body. Right. A physical body. I always think of them as bodies. Because that's how they appear. But... Right. So, when they appear, when we have angelophanies, appearances of angels, yes, they take on bodies. But in their natural state, in their created state, they don't have a body. So, we got one on the, uh, on the angels there. Good job. <clears throat> we have a lot more than that, of course. <coughs> next, next year, around this time, we're doing a study on angels and demons and spiritual warfare. That'll be great. Um, but one thing that we have over the angels is that we are mainly into God and they're not. Okay. But that'll be next year. The point is, that Paul's making, is even if I did speak in angelic voice, however angels speak, I am fruitless to the body of Christ if I do not have love. In verses 8 through 13, it begins, love never ends. And it ends with, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These are the, the higher gifts that everyone ought to earnestly desire, is faith, hope, and love, these three. Of course, the greatest, the highest of the higher gifts is love. Paul himself says that these spiritual gifts will cease. He says, uh, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, I take knowledge there as a revelatory word of knowledge, not all knowledge per se, because eternal life, as Jesus says in John 17, is to know true God. Okay? I take prophecy, tongues, knowledge, these as special, a special revelatory word that will one day pass away, that will one day cease. When? And this is where it gets really controversial. Uh, well, 
Paul says, when the perfect comes. Verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And you can read ten commentaries on Corinthians and get ten or more views on what the perfect means. And I'm not staking all that I say here on my particular interpretation. I'll just up front say that in this present generation, the view I'm presenting is the minority uh, position. Though not, um, you know, minority in the whole history of the church. And I can't recall who all affirms this. I know that O. Palmer Robertson does not agree with, with me on this, and, and that's okay. Because this is really difficult. Uh, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what the perfect is. Some say that uh, the perfect is Jesus. So when Jesus comes, the partial will pass away. Or some will take the language uh, perfect and say it's Jesus' return, <coughs> his second coming. When the second coming takes place, the partial will pass away. <clears throat> and that is a viable interpretation. The word perfect, however, is in the uh, neuter category, uh, grammatically neuter, which means it isn't in particular a reference to a person. It is a what not a who. And recall that the sign gifts existed for the prophets, for judges and the apostles, to testify to the truth of the word. The signs and wonders serve the word of God. Remember, he he teaches and he shows. Signs um, serve the word of God. They are not a replacement for the word of God. When the word is complete, the signs pass away. The perfect, and this is again my interpretation, uh, I believe is the canonization of scripture. The uh, final inscripturation of the word, of special revelation. The full scripture inscripturation of the word of God, to which the signs always uh, we're pointing. And uh, so when the, when the final, when the perfect, the, the fullness of the word of God inscripturated comes, we don't need all of these signs that we're pointing to that we're serving the word of God. Yes? Inscripturation, do you mean articulation in common, in human tongues? The, the writing down of the word of God. In the inspired language. So in Hebrew, obviously it's been written in, in Hebrew at this time, but it still needs to be written. The New Testament wasn't fully written at, at this time. So it would be the Greek writing of okay. the New Testament. When that is finally done, then we have the fullness of the Word of God in written form. Okay. To so which the, the sign... At the time of Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians, it is incomplete. Yes, this is mid-50s, 54, 55 <coughs> AD. Uh, so we still have uh, several more letters. In fact, 1 Corinthians might be one of the earlier, it is one of the earlier letters of the New Testament. James most likely being the, the first letter. Uh, but John has many writings uh, to, to, to write, and Paul himself has many writings in the low to mid-60s with 2 Timothy for instance, <clears throat> and Peter as well. Might he mean then that which was to become what we think of as the New Testament, rather than writings which we'll only possess when we are with Christ and can see him because we are like him? I mean, might he mean the writing of the New Testament? Might he mean this New Testament that we have? That's, what I'm, sa- that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the New Testament. You say, if you want to, you know, boil it down, um, when the New Testament writing comes, the partial will pass away. The prophecy in the tongues. 
the, the things that the sign gives that pointed to the word of God. And, and remember, Peter says that with Scripture we have a more sure word. This is more sure than the experience he had at the Transfiguration. A true experience. An act of special revelation. Okay? In, I mean, it wasn't in written form, of course, though it eventually did get written down. So we have it in Matthew 17 and elsewhere. <clears throat> but some would say, well, we don't see Christ face-to-face until his return, right? He says, um, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Well, I would submit to you that we do see face-to-face. We do see Christ face-to-face when we read his scripture, because we see Christ as he truly is, as revealed finally in his word. Now again, uh, I'm not alone in this interpretation, uh, but that is one way to take this language of the perfect. If you like Greg Bonson, he believed that, so there you go. I can't recall what Calvin believes on this. <clears throat> yes, Dee? Wouldn't it be more correct to say that we will see Jesus face to face in heaven? Uh, because when we read, our minds create pictures and they're, they're not necessarily true pictures. Right, right, right. So, I don't see Christ. I might hear, interpret, learn, but I don't see Christ when I read the Bible. Well, Christ tells you that all of the Bible speaks of him. So you are to see Christ in, in the pages of Scripture. Now, you don't visually see what he looks like. I thought that was what you meant. No. Uh, okay. This is a more of a a clear spiritual sight, uh, understanding, uh, a greater view of our of the Lord. Uh, yeah, he, he he doesn't want us to have images of him on this side of heaven. So uh, we we should eschew any kind of attempt to depict or to view Christ. Um, and you're right, Dee. There are times when we get images of Jesus as we read, and we would do well to. Um, Avoid those, as our larger Catechism 109 actually says. Yeah, but sadly, it's one that many people take an exception on. That's the Second Commandment discussion. We'll have that later on next year. We're going to talk about the Law of God then, so I'll hold off any comments or questions about that until next year. So we move into 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> and I was especially helped by uh, Matthew Everhard. Uh, his, he's done a couple of lessons on tongues and Pentecost and uh, he's walked through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as well. And one of the things he points out is that there are more cautions than commands when it comes to tongue speaking in this, uh, in this particular chapter. Uh, there, are, there's more, um, there are more seatbelts, and that's the language that he uses. Uh, more of the pumping of the brakes than you know, the pressing on the pedal to, to go ahead. So, you see a lot of cautions here. In verses 1 and 2 of this lengthy chapter, we are commanded to pursue love over all. Uh, since there is no interpreter, the tongue speaker speaks only to God. It says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Often, in this particular chapter, Paul is... Imagine a scenario in which there is a tongue speaker, but because now the context is removed from Pentecost, there may or may not be someone who has a gift of interpretation. So he has in mind then those who speak tongues, the gift of tongues, but there's no interpreter. What's he doing? Is he speaking only then to God, not to men? He's speaking mysteries. He's speaking things that are incomprehensible to the humans in the Corinthian church, because they don't know these languages. And this verse 14, or verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So there's self-edification for the tongue speaker, but the prophets, and he's commending prophecy over tongue speaking, because prophecy serves the church. It edifies the, the church. It builds up the church. Now, 
He does say, in verse 5, the prophecy is better than tongues. He says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. I'll get to that first part of 5 in just a minute. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So prophecy is better than tongues, unless someone interprets the tongues, then it is the same. So he says, I want you all to speak in tongues. Again, it's not a bad thing to speak in tongues. Paul himself speaks in tongues. Oh, he did when he wrote this. It is a good, or at least you could say it's a possible good, provided that there is edification. Paul himself is glad, as he says in verse 18, that he speaks in tongues. The encouragement in verse 5, now I want all of you to speak in tongues, this encouragement is to be seen in the Historia Salutis. That is to say, in the history of salvation, here we have the gift of tongues. So, as long as the gift of tongues is still a thing, Paul is saying, yeah, I want you to speak in tongues. So long as you have an interpreter. So it's, this is not a, a wish for all Christians in all ages, especially since this gift will then cease. Speaking in tongues will not in itself be a benefit to anyone. Verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless... I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. The gift of tongues in itself, without any kind of interpretation, without any kind of um, revelatory explanation, is not going to help the church. Speaking in tongues, verse 9, is unintelligible in itself. It's like speaking into the air, he says. So with yourselves, if, you, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Again, he is assuming a context that uh, demands an interpretation, an interpreter. And the Corinthian church is not guaranteed an interpreter of tongues. The situations are different in Corinth and in, at Pentecost in Jerusalem. He says... In verse 14, essentially, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful in tongue speaking. Verse 16, you can summarize, if you pray in tongues, that is, again, without an interpreter, no one can say amen. You shouldn't be saying amen to something you don't understand, right? And the words spoken in in tongues were words of prayer. They were words of blessing. They were words of thanksgiving to God. That would, he says, elicit an amen from others if translated into speech that they could understand. And in verse 9, or 19, he says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So five words with the mind, that is to say, the, with intelligibility, These five words are better than 10,000 words spoken in a tongue left uninterpreted. About, um, I don't write out all of my my sermons. I thought it was probably about three sermons would be 10,000 words. Okay? I probably speak more than 3,000 words or so in a sermon, but I don't write that many. And he's saying five words, essentially, in three sermons are better than three whole sermons in a tongue uninterpreted. He's really emphasizing the importance of interpretation, the emphasizing the importance of intelligibility. He wants God's revelation to be made clear to God's people. And so if there's a tongue speaker who doesn't have someone to interpret the tongues, because he might not have the gift himself, then that person needs to sit down. That person should not be speaking that tongue. That's what he's saying. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 all have this in common. They were means or they were modes of revelation because the people did not have the completed Bible. To interpret the tongues is to explain 
by translating. And as we see uh, in Luke, for instance, in Luke 24. My voice just gave out. That was Luke 24, 27. This is towards the end. <clears throat> On the road to Emmaus, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus explained, he interpreted the word of God to these people, that they might know that all scripture points to him and finds its fulfillment in him. Speaking in tongues was equivalent to prophecy when the tongues were interpreted. So what's the difference then between Pentecost and Corinth? Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, says this, those who heard tongues in Jerusalem already possessed the key for their interpretation. They understood the foreign languages since they were their native tongues. No translation was required. By contrast, in Corinth, it was necessary for an interpreter to speak. When did that happen? When did what happen? When did the transition from the tongue as <clears throat> foreign to the speaker but intelligible to the listener become unintelligible to the listener? Because the tongues then changed from, at some point, the tongue, speaking in tongues changed from production of earthly language to production of a language that nobody understood. Were they always earthly no, they're languages? All, so that's what I'm saying. They're, they're always earthly languages, but in Corinth, now they're not, uh, they're, now they don't have all these earthly languages that were represented in Pentecost. People left. Okay. Right. <clears throat> so, but why so, would he need an interpreter if he's speaking language, if he's speaking in a language that's foreign to him, but with the intention of being intelligible to his audience? Is that because everybody spoke a different language? In his, they needed make different languages in the audience, so he had to speak a language that was intelligible to all of them. Yes. So that would have been Greek, but there were others who had gifts of tongues, who spoke in languages. And their brothers and sisters did not know those languages. But they were earthly. But they were earthly, yes. They couldn't be angelic. Because he talks about people speaking in angelic words. When did you come in this morning? Just <laughs> Okay. No, I, I, was, I, I, I talked about that earlier today. Yeah. We don't know what angelic tongues would, would have been. And Paul is not saying that he himself speaks in angelic tongues. He's saying that even if he did, uh, he had no, didn't have love, it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be worth anything. What he is saying, uh, so in the Bible's use of the language of the word tongue, we see them as earthly languages. That's what Pentecost is, uh, is telling us, that people in their own native tongues are hearing the word of God, the mighty works of God being proclaimed. Then why did they need an interpreter? They didn't in Pentecost, but they did in Corinth because they didn't have all those languages represented there. So I think maybe she's saying it doesn't make sense for them to speak a language that nobody else there speaks. Like if, if they're teaching in Corinth and they all understand <coughs> Greek or something, then why would they need to speak Spanish when nobody understands that? Yeah. Well, isn't that what Paul there, said? There were various gifts. There were various people. People did speak in different languages, but it's not that all the languages that people spoke in, everyone understood. So Paul is saying, if you're speaking in a language other people don't understand, and there's not an interpreter, then you shouldn't speak that. You shouldn't use that gift of tongues that you hadn't uh, hadn't learned. All right, let's move on. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Another point here, in Biki says, uh, speaking of the tongues, referencing 1 Corinthians 14, addressing Israel by a nation whose tongue the Hebrews couldn't understand was a covenantal curse. So the blessing was one to the nations in whose languages the gospel was now being proclaimed. We saw that, uh, <clears throat> we saw that at Pentecost. But there was this curse on Israel. Uh, there was some judgment 
Because Israel, as a nation, should have proclaimed the mighty works of God. And now they're hearing the mighty works of God being proclaimed in languages other than Hebrew. And a final note with respect to 1 Corinthians, as I mentioned earlier, it was written in AD 54, 55. There is no mention of the sign gifts in uh, later New Testament epistles. It's important, especially as we move into Ephesians 2 and Hebrews 1. <clears throat> in, in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 17... says, and he, that's Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. When did Christ come and preach to the Ephesians? In one sense, he didn't. He was not physically in Ephesus preaching peace to the Ephesians. Well then, how can Paul say that Christ preached peace to the Ephesians? Through the storytelling of Okay, namely? His apostles. His apostles? Yeah. Yeah. So, in Acts 19, we have Paul himself in Ephesus preaching. The Word of God. The Ephesians heard the Word of God. They heard Christ preaching to them through the apostles. <clears throat> verse uh, 18 here, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The truth of Pentecost is then alive and well here in Ephesus. Remember the truth of Pentecost, as we as I charted a little bit last, last week, is that the, uh, God is bringing in not just Jews, but Gentiles. And we saw how uh, Watershed, chapter 19, uh, chapters 10, 11, and 19 really are. The inclusion of the Gentiles. So now all, Jew and Gentile, have access to Christ, to the Father, through the Holy Spirit. So based on verse 19, you don't have to wonder if you belong to the household of God. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, you do belong to the household of God. Verse 20, this household is the church. <clears throat> Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone. God's household, the church, is built on the apostolic and prophetic foundation. Verses 21-22, we have the church is continuing to grow in Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So Christ left to give us the Spirit, and so the Spirit will not now leave us when we need him most. I mentioned that last time, that the Son enters the indoxated heavens, receives the indoxate Spirit, only then to, with the Father, give that Spirit as a gift to men to indoxate the earth. The apostolic and prophetic sign gifts confirm this special foundation, which foundation need be laid only once. You don't continually lay the foundation. Perhaps if you've studied this study, the subject of the cessation of gifts, you'll hear this often, is that once the foundation is laid, the church is built on it. You don't then have another layer of foundation. You don't then add more prophets and apostles. The church is, is on that foundation of the prophets and apostles, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. And then finally, in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, we see in verses 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, I don't have time to explore all the many ways at which, uh, many times rather, at which God spoke, or the many ways in which God spoke. 
what are these last days? When he says in these last days, he's spoken to us. Okay, I would say very close. Uh, what was that? Since Pentecost. Okay, so you have Christ being exalted, and then uh, he's he's a he he uh, was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He gives the Spirit. We have in this new age of the Spirit. These are the last days, and the Son. God has spoken in these last days through, uh, by, by the agency of, of his son. And, of course, before the son left, he uh, had appointed apostles for the continuation of his word, men who are inspired by God to give the word of God. So how is it the son still speaks in these last days? He speaks in these last days through his word. And in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4, we read, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and even transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, Distributed according to his will. Notice that First uh, Corinthians 12 allusion. I wonder if the authors are similar. <clears throat> so, what is it that we have heard to which we must pay close attention? It is to this son speech, if you will. Does modern day tongue speaking add to Revelation such that we say that the Son is still speaking today through these modern-day tongue speakers. Well, some would say yes. And others are very cautious and say, well, there's only one word of God, and it's the Bible. Okay? But if, if they are going to be consistent with how tongues are used in, in, the, in the New Testament, then they would have to say that they are especially inspired revelation. Uh, but they are rightly cautious to go that far. Should we seek present-day angelic gifts of the law or revelation? No. Salvation was declared first, we see here, then attested by those who heard Jesus in the flesh, and God himself testified to this revelation of salvation by various means. He gave us signs and wonders, powers, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. But with the declaration and the signs to confirm the declaration, and with the revelation being now complete, shall we still seek the sign? I would submit, no. God worked through the apostles, and he of course worked on those on whom the apostles laid their hands, or to whom the apostles brought the gospel. The purpose was to authenticate messengers of Christ's ministry. That's what miracles did. They authenticated, they corroborated the messenger. This is really the word of God. And here is a sign as evidence that this is the word of God. <clears throat> nowhere, final comments here, nowhere is the gift com commanded to get it. Nowhere is the gift uh, expressed or, or taught how to, how to help others to speak it. And that's really important. You know, if, if we're supposed to seek this gift, there's no, there's no instruction manual on how to actually speak it. All of what we're saying here really highlights the finality and the sufficiency of the Word of God. Are we really committed to the Scripture as inspired? So, um, I'll just end with a couple more comments here from Confession of Faith, chapter 1. Uh, paragraph 1 says, Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. And the authors cite Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Those old ways, true ways, excellent ways that God revealed his word. And with people who have the gift of miracles, healing, tongue speaking, prophecy, those being now ceased. And why? Because we have the fullness of the revelation 
in the Son, in the written word. And so to seek the gift of tongues is to seek the sign more than the thing signified. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. There is much here that uh, requires still more deliberation and discussion. Do pray, Lord, that you will help us to be as good Bereans, to search the scriptures, to see Christ in all of the scriptures, and to have godly conversation with uh, our brothers and sisters who may disagree with us. Help us, Lord, to approach them, approach one another in gentleness and in love, and not with any spirit of division, uh, but with a spirit of understanding as we lean upon the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.